We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening, Gavin. And on the telephone by Taipei-based freelance journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the loss of one airline and the gaining of another, the DPP remembering the 1979 Kaohsiung or Formosa incident, a couple of pieces of legislation, one concerning the establishment of a National Human Rights Committee and the other to allow victims of certain crimes to more actively participate in trials and court hearings. And we'll also be chatting about the most sought-after stuff on Google search here in Taiwan over the past year. But we'll begin with police and prosecutors on Wednesday of this week detaining Ten people for questioning as part of an investigation into allegations that travel agencies colluded with civic groups to illegally help large numbers of Chinese nationals enter Taiwan. Authorities say the main suspect in the case, Hong Ching Lin, who was a former office director of the former Taipei County Council's KMT caucus, helped more than 5,000 Chinese citizens enter Taiwan illegally from between January of 2017 to June of this year. And some of the Chinese nationals who entered Taiwan were government officials and apparently also law enforcement officers. Now, prosecutors say at least 30 travel agencies were working with the civic groups, some of which existed only on paper, to provide documentation required for Chinese citizens to apply to the National Immigration Agency for entry permits. The permits were issued based on claims that the Chinese nationals in question were visiting Taiwan to conduct cultural, business and other activities. And prosecutors say those involved in the scam likely made some 10 million NT in illegal profits as each Chinese visitor was charged 2,000 NT for the service. Now the suspects are now all facing possible charges under the Act governing relations between the people of the Taiwan area and the mainland area for aiding and abetting illegal immigration. So Ross, of course, this case has come to light amid concern over Chinese officials entering Taiwan to get up to no good, of course, ahead of the election. And, of course, this issue has been much bandied around recently. Well, certainly we don't want uh, Chinese intelligence agents coming to Taiwan and doing no good. But guess what, Gavin? They're here, and there's probably a lot of them. And so I'm going to disagree with one word that you use. You refer to this as a scam. Uh, actually, the, the NIA, uh, the immigration agency, they, they got some paperwork. <laughs> it, it was obviously under false pretenses. Uh, but uh, it might also be that of these 5,000 people, a lot of them were coming here for legitimate business, for tourism. And they just didn't want to go through the normal channels. Or, or from the travel agent perspective, uh, their counterparts because they're probably working with a travel agency in China as well, said, uh, you know, we, we, got, we got a guy who, or a family who want to visit, uh, but we're too lazy to go through the usual uh, application procedure, so do you have something better, something faster? And as periodically happens here in Taiwan, people come up with workarounds from uh, unnecessarily complex government processes, so uh, they, they came up with this fix, which, yes, it was illegal, so they deserve to be charged, and hopefully, um, if the evidence is sufficient, they'll be found guilty and go to jail. Uh, but it, it's probably as much a, a, a just a desire not to deal with the usual procedures to get tourists or individual travelers in Taiwan you know, as it is anything else. So, uh, Among these 5,000, were there intelligence agents or people up to no good? Probably. But uh, as I said before, 
under the usual channels, there probably are plenty of intelligence agents and people up to no good uh, who, who apply through the, the normal channels. So uh, it's unlikely that these 5,000 were all spies, so let's not, um, you know, lose control here. Um, but uh, part of the problem is probably just the, the application procedures were too complex and people said, oh, we'll come up with a quick fix. And then it raises the more significant issue while all the focus is on the people behind this uh, uh, illegality is why are the officers at the NIA not scrutinizing applications a little more carefully? So there's some blame that needs to go to the government agencies involved and not only to the people who are running the activity. Ralph. I, yeah, I tend to agree with uh, Ross that the um, procedures, for some reason, are easier if you apply as a as a uh, an exchange, a professional exchange or academic exchange. For some reason, the background checks either not there or they're very light compared to the everyday tourist who's going to be going from scenic spot to scenic spot under the guidance of a guide, of course. So. Um, I suspect that the NIA, the immigration people, will change that rule if they, if they, if they, if they can, so this doesn't happen anymore. I, it, one thing seems clear, which is that this whole um, racket was done for profit, whether it was also done to help Chinese people come over here and spy or do something else that they shouldn't be doing remains to be seen. I interviewed the spokesperson for the prosecutor's office yesterday who simply declined to tell us whether or not they're investigating whether, you know, the activities of the Chinese that came over. She was saying this is just about Taiwan for now and whether these, the Mr. Hong and the other agents involved were breaking the law and which laws they broke. So they're playing it real conservative at the moment. But of course, Ross, there has been allegations that one Jung An Le was involved, or rather his son was involved, and of course he's the Unification Party bloke. Yeah, again, uh, as I said a few minutes ago, we shouldn't lose control over uh, some things absent seeing any significant evidence. Uh, at the risk of casting aspersions on Mr. Jung An Le, there's been some accusations that in the past he's been involved in illegal activities. So if he is charged or his family members are charged with criminal activity, it, it, it isn't necessarily because they want to subvert Taiwan so much as it is they just want to make money. And again, uh, some people figured out that we could create this structure. And as Ralph said, it, it, it appears that it's easier to uh, give people or provide people the necessary permissions to enter Taiwan by creating these kinds of structures and, and to say, oh, this person's been invited to uh, a cultural exchange, give a speech, a business trip, it's just a lot easier than uh, applying for a tour group or, or the, the individual traveler scheme that, that now is also not in operation by decision of the Chinese side. Uh, so it could just be that he was trying to make money. You know, he's, he's obviously someone who's willing to be aggressive with uh, the requirements of laws and regulations in order to make a profit. So uh, notwithstanding his outspoken support for unification, uh, this might have been a money scheme, money-making scheme more so than uh, he was doing something to subvert Taiwan's security. And obviously, Ralph, this has highlighted some loopholes, or would you describe them as loopholes or sort of maybe a dirty great black hole? I, I was just thinking, um, I'm surprised if these people had exchange visas, or not visas, but they had permits to come here on exchanges. What about the receiving unit, the university, or the 
um, foundation that's supposed to host them, those people should be made aware that the would somehow be in on it. They would be told that, look, these Chinese nationals aren't going to show up for this fake conference. Um, and then they go on and make have a tour. I suppose their travel agencies are aware of it. Um, there seem to be a lot of loopholes that have been very cleverly plugged by people all up and down the chain here. Um, and if this case really stands up, and it's certainly if there's any credible um, evidence that they were here spying, then I suspect that we'll see some changes. What about official corruption, Ross? Obviously, they're travel agencies and possibly fake civic groups, but what about corruption higher up in the immigration agency, etc., etc.? No, as, as I mentioned earlier, it could just be simply uh, that they're remiss, you know, they didn't scrutinize the paperwork carefully. Uh, is it possible that an officer within uh, the NIA or other agencies uh, uh, was helpful to the people running this operation and received money? In return, yes, it's it, it's possible. Uh, Taiwan does have uh, government does have government corruption. Fortunately, it's not as uh, much as it used to be, but it does sometimes happen. So that that shouldn't surprise us if if it was corruption more so than sloppiness. But whether it was sloppiness or corruption, it, it, it still says that people were not doing their job because someone higher up should have noticed the corruption or the sloppiness below them. But the immigration agency, uh, uh, I would guess, Gavin, that they'd say, look, we're, we're also a bit under-resourced. we got a lot of tourists coming into Taiwan. There's been an increase in the tourist numbers from other countries, notwithstanding the drop from China. There's the ongoing problem of uh, overstayers, and, and most significantly with blue-collar labor from Southeast Asia. Um, there's the occasional white collar, you know, English teacher, foreigner who gets involved in some illegality that falls into the purview of the NIA as well. Uh, so they're, they're busy folks, and, and uh, it's understandable if you know, officers are getting thousands of docu uh, yeah, applications that they process them a bit too quickly. All right, moving on. And Taiwan got a new airline and lost an airline this week. And we'll start with Starlux, which kicked the week off when it announced that it's set to take off on schedule after the Ministry of Transport approved the carrier's application to operate. And Taiwan's newest airline will begin selling tickets for its start of commercial services on January the 23rd. And it will begin with flights to Macau, Da Nang and Penang. Now, we've talked about the airline quite a bit since former Ever Airways boss, Jung Kuo-wei, announced plans to start it many months ago, but it has now leased one A321neo, with two more set for delivery before the launch date. And of course, Jung flew the airline's first plane to Taiwan a couple of months ago. Meanwhile, Far Eastern Air Transport this week made a sudden decision to end its flight operations from today, and that's likely to affect over 3,000 passengers. Now, the Tourism Bureau says some 3,251 people in one 121 tour groups had already booked scheduled flights for today or later dates, while another five tour groups comprising of, well, figures between 157 and 500 people have taken flights overseas and are scheduled to return to Taiwan on Far Eastern Air Transport. Now, the statements come after Far Eastern Air Transport's Deputy General Manager, Huang Yu Chi, announced that the airline was ending its services from today due to financial difficulties. And Huang says the carrier is suspending its flights temporarily, he said, although that's temporarily word is being banded around and questioned
questioned due to a shortage of funds, and the shortage of funds he banded around were 30 million NT. Now, the chairman of the airline, Chung Gung Wei, also could be in trouble as he could face a fine of 200 million NT and a prison sentence of three years if the airline fails to provide services for any of its flights it booked today. Now, the carrier is promising to protect the rights of the company's 1,000 employees, but the Ministry of Labour says it has yet to receive any notice from the airline about any imminent major layoffs. And the Taipei City Government's Department of Labour says if the airline proceeds with any major layoffs without giving the required 60-day notice, legal action could be brought against the carrier's chairman and he could be banned from leaving the country pending an investigation. Now, of course, Far Eastern Air Transport was established in 1957 and it's, well, it's had a bit of a chequered history, Ross, hasn't it? It sort of it went bankrupt for a bit, declared bankruptcy and then came back and then declared bankruptcy again. Yeah, it, it's an airline uh, that's had a number of problems, as you mentioned. It's also unfortunately had uh, accidents as well that resulted in fatalities. Uh, so it, its history is, not, is, is similar to the other small airlines in Taiwan, like TransAsia, which went out of business uh, recently as well. Um, some of the other smaller airlines which had emerged into the bigger airlines. And, and in fact, the larger airlines have had their share of financial staff and, and uh, safety problems as well. Uh, China Airlines m- much more so than, than EVA. Uh, the uh, ironic thing with EVA, of course, is Mr. Zhang, who, who was basically kicked out by his half-brothers <laughs> after the, the family patriarch passed away, um, really was was considered in the business world the, the 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 engine of success for Eva. Anyone who flew Eva when he was running the airline would ap- appreciate the good service, uh, constant renewal of the fleet. Um, so they kept that up to date. Um, the airline was highly ranked by, by a lot of websites and air travel magazines, and a lot of that was due to his efforts. Uh, one reason for that is, as you mentioned, Gavin, the guy actually knows how to fly the aircraft, and, and we shouldn't underestimate that you know, as, as the, the traveling public, how important it is to have the, the leader or you know, the, the, the CEO of an airline who actually knows how to fly the aircraft, some of the aircraft, in, in his airline's fleet and really understands uh, all the angles, you know, the staffing angles, the passenger experience angle, technical issues, and, and all these things that make an airline successful. I, I think people here in Taiwan are, are very optimistic about Starlock simply because of his success uh, as uh, when he was running EVA, but uh, again, as the demise of two airlines within the last few years show us, uh, it is hard to run a smaller airline in Taiwan. You know, even the, the budget airlines um, had some difficulties, although they've stabilized. But, you know, for example, Tiger had some difficulties in, in its first few years as well, T- Tiger Taiwan uh, specifically. Uh, so uh, part of the challenge also is going to be in the, the route selection. So they've gone with a, you know, a modest you know, medium distance, you know, within five hours to to Penang and, and, and Da Nang and, and Macau's even closer. So, you know, a bit conservative. You have no long haul to start with, not going to overspend on, on fleet as well. Uh, but again, I, I think the public is, is really looking forward to this, especially with uh, the departure of two other airlines, staffing, labor disputes, both at China Airlines and even the last few years. 
So, Ralph, the demise of one airline and the start of another. But, of course, does, does Taiwan have too many airlines for the size of the island? I don't think it has too many. If you look at other parts of Asia with population sizes that are similar to ours here and, uh, you know, the wealth to fly, you see just as many, perhaps. But I think South Korea has more airlines than Taiwan does. Um, I know Vietnam is up to, like, you know, six or seven, although they have a larger population that's not as wealthy. So it's a matter, to me, of some of the, the age of the airlines and the mentality of the management. Like if you look at Far Eastern, then you can see that they had an old fleet. They had a lot of uh, McDonnell Douglas aircraft. Um, as Ross mentioned, uh, they got into some accidents. They use Songshan Airport as a base, which is not, it's really hard to get any connecting flights out of that place because there's so few destinations outside of Taiwan. So, um, I, and I think somebody told me that uh, FAT had never joined an alliance of other airlines, so that makes it, they had no code shares and things like that. So they just, they were thinking in the past, and we should have had some warning when, in 2008 when they, they did this before. They went out of business for, I think, three or four years. Um, this was after high-speed rail came along and, uh, you know, killed off the Kaohsiung Taipei flights. But, um, you know, that, 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 their suspension of flights then was an indicator that they were, that the management wasn't very good, that the other airlines did not stop because of high-speed rail. So they were doing things right. Um Starlux is an interesting case. I think um, they are, as Ross mentioned, they're conservative at the start. Um, they're, they're, you know, interesting to talk to. They won't tell you what their what their fares are going to be, which is a big question. It's not really first class. It doesn't take the place of, you know, sitting in the in the front few aisles of, a, of an Emirates flight, for example. It's not that luxurious, from what I understand. Um, so it sort of remains to be seen what the customer experience will be. And, and whether it's uh, it's worth it. But looking at the destinations, it sounds like it's going to be leisure. If you look at Da Nang, Penang, Macau, this is uh, tourism, gambling, things like that. So it could be just, you know, you want a nice experience from the time you leave the door to the time you get back home, and this is the airline that will do it for you. Uh, one, one thing to watch is uh, whether their focus is just going to be on, on outbound Taiwan travelers, or they're also going to try and get into the market for bringing tourists to Taiwan. From from these initial destinations, it's pretty obvious that the, the focus for now is on the outbound Taiwan traveler. The destinations they're going to are not, not a source for large numbers of inbound tourists to Taiwan the way uh, Japan and Korea destinations would be, or, or frankly, China, subject to the whims of politicians on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, uh, or even the Philippines, which has become a big source of inbound travelers in, in the budget space. Uh, there are there has been an increase in, in inbound travel from Vietnam, but but that's of course mostly coming from uh, the larger municipal areas, uh, Ho Chi Minh City and, and Hanoi, rather than the seaside resort of Da Nang. So for now, they're focusing on the outbound uh, traveler. Uh, one more thing to keep in mind is Penang, which is a great place to visit. I've been there several times. We certainly encourage it during the winter months here in Taiwan uh, as a place for Taiwan travelers to go to. But Taiwan Airlines have flown there in the past, and, and they've withdrawn because they just couldn't make money off the route. 
Right, and we'll leave flying there and move on to the DPP this week, marking the 40th anniversary of the Kaohsiung or Formosa incident, with a parade in Kaohsiung and a more formal event at the Grand Hotel in Taipei. Both of those events brought together numerous current and former DPP figures. Now, very briefly, the incident occurred when the Formosa magazine held a demonstration in Kaohsiung commemorating Human Rights Day on December the 10th of 1979, as it sought to promote the need to rid Taiwan of its single-party rule. The military, needless to say, intervened in an attempt to stop the rally and that resulted in the arrest of leaders and members of the what was then the Deng Wai movement. Now, Presidential Office Secretary General and former Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Ju was one of those arrested and speaking at Monday's event, she said the protesters must be recognised for their bravery and she went on to say, had the event not taken place, who knows what Taiwan's history would have been. However, there was a downside to the events as the TV news channels sent their reporters out to the streets to ask Taiwan's younger generation about the 1979 incident and many of those asked didn't really know much about it and that led to calls for the government or somebody to give it a more prominent place in the island's history books. So Ralph, younger people not knowing about the 1979 Kaohsiung Formosa incident. It doesn't surprise me. It's not because of the incident. It's not because of its significance is because younger people are younger people and probably go almost anywhere in the world. They, they're not going to know their history more than, you know, five minutes ago because they, they live in the present. They can't feel and experience these things. Uh, those who know and those who care will probably grow up in households where their parents talk about it and they have some, uh, it's, it's a little more palpable, tangible thing for them. Um, I, I'm not surprised that the, the textbooks or, or whatnot will add that uh, discussion of the incident it is a big deal for Taiwan. It did change the course of history, and um, you know, the, like the textbooks that my kids use, they cut, they they um, they're a bit dated. And when you get to that part of, of history, um, there's a lot of discussion about the things that Chiang Kai-shek did, which weren't very nice. Uh, but then it, it kind of peters out after that, and there's more discussion about you know living in a civil society and. The, the civic institutions around you, so perhaps they need to add more of that to the to the uh, to the textbooks that we're all reading. Well, it's interesting. Thir what, what do we have, Gavin? Thirteen years of, of DPP central government, the eight years of Chen Shui-bian, and three years of uh, close to four years now of Tsai Ing-wen, and they have it changed the education curriculum to sufficiently uh, educate younger generations about these significant uh, events on, in Taiwan's path towards democracy. Uh, that, that's interesting. I mean, it's not necessarily the children's fault. Um, you know, the parents don't demand this. They, if they demand a focus on you know, math and science and, and, and the, the, the topics that help kids get to the next level of the education system, then, of course, the education system is going to respond to that. They're not going to add more history or, or more give more time to history. Uh, we're living in an environment where there's certainly a consciousness among younger people, given recent events, whether uh, five years ago with the Sunflower Movement that opposed the trade agreement with China, more recent events over the course of this year, uh, both before and during the Hong Kong protests and, and the relevance to Taiwan. There's certainly a consciousness of what, what dictatorship means, whether it's uh, KMT, non-communist dictatorship that existed for 40 years here, or, or a communist dictatorship 
in, in China. Uh, so people, young people, I think, are cognizant of that, but it's, it is unfortunate that they're not necessarily cognizant of those events right here in Taiwan. But I, I think the, the messengers of this um, need to do some self-reflection as well. So it's easy to send the kids out, uh, sorry, sorry, send the cameras out on the street to ask the kids. Uh, but the messengers, you know, the people who spoke at, at, at these commemorations, the, the people who were involved in the events who are, are still alive, uh, what are they doing to connect with a younger generation? You know, they, they got to ask themselves this because it's not like you could rely on the, the army or, or the KMT to take a significant role in, in sharing the lessons. So it really is the, those people who are involved in those events who, who need to, I say, do some self-reflection and figure out how to better pass along these messages. And it shouldn't be too politicized either. So that could be one reason why you lose some interest among younger people because like you say, okay, Chen Ju, she was a significant figure in those events. She went to jail. Oh, but she's also a politician. She was a mayor and she's still in politics because she works in the presidential office in a very significant role. She's out there campaigning for, for President Tsai and, and DPP legislative UN candidates. So I, I think that deteriorates from the message as well. When you know, and Gavin, you started this segment by saying, oh, the DPP commemorated this event and, and so so it's already politicized it's it's not a uh you know, something for, just for society at large right it's politicized yeah i noticed also i think we all know that these events that, that tend to put the negative spotlight back on the taiwan in the, the martial law era or the the very the seeds of democracy anything like that is has normally has a political overtone as a dvp overtone um but as Ross said, the KMT isn't exactly going to come out and say anything, and the Army probably isn't going to do it either. So, so it's in their interest to bring it up, so fine, they do it. Um, and to that extent, perhaps they need to be the ones pushing it to come part, become part of the curriculum for everybody to see, including the youth. It reminds me a bit of uh, Vietnam War syndrome in the United States. There's uh, not as much discussion of that as there should be. Um, those who talk about the bad things that happened in the war tend to be in politics. They kind of want you to know, or they're angry veterans groups. And there's, there's definitely a, a political overtone to some of that that discussion. And it's kind of sad because the veterans are getting older and eventually they won't be around anymore. And so there goes that piece of history. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and lawmakers this week voted on a couple of pieces of legislation, one of those pieces being to establish a National Human Rights Committee under the Control UN. Now, the committee's duties will include investigating human rights abuses, proposing changes to human rights law based on international standards, compiling an annual human rights report, and promoting related educational endeavours. The committee will be comprised of the Control UN's president and nine other members, seven of whom will be required to possess professional qualifications 
operations in the field of human rights. Well, there we go. The bill also stipulates that the committee's work will be divided between three subcommittees focusing on research, investigations and education. Now, the legislation is part of government moves to repurpose the government watchdog as a human rights monitor. So, Ross, repurposing the control you went into a human rights body or maybe the control you went should be left as the government watchdog and another human rights body may be established. Up to you. What well, would you do? Well, first of all, it sounds like creating more bureaucracy that might not necessarily be required. Some of the things that you just mentioned is within the scope of this new committee are done by various uh, departments w- within the government across agencies. You know, education, obviously, you know, and we were talking earlier in the program about curriculum I- issues specifically as regards uh, history and Taiwan's path to democratization. Now we're talking about education of human rights. Ralph earlier mentioned, you know, civics. And all right, so there's, that, that's in his, his kids' textbooks. So we have other agencies already doing this. So there'll probably be some turf wars. There'll be a lot of meetings. There'll be a lot of hearings. And the, yeah, they'll produce some changes to uh, various operations of different government agencies as it regards to, as with regards to human rights. Uh, Taiwan is generally pretty good with, with human rights. Often it's just more an education issue. So, you know, police abuse, for example, that might occur or, or not uh, giving suspects the rights that they're due. I mean, sometimes just education or training issues. Uh, so it's a little unclear what this agency or committee will do, especially given its, its um, inferior ranking within the control UN as opposed to being at the level of other commissions such as uh, communications commission uh, the uh, securities uh, regulator the financial services supervisory commission you know, so, something that's a, at that level that has enforcement capability could actually bring charges uh, issue fines against uh, individuals or companies or uh, so it, it's just compartmentalized Within the control you end, it doesn't. Uh, I'm not very optimistic that it could actually have much substantive achievement, but it'll probably give a, a few. You mentioned the number of people will be on the committee, so some people will get some titles and they'll have some meetings, and uh, I guess everyone will be sort of happy with that but the control un can't can't get rid of it unless we change the constitution and we all know how complex that'll be but the examination un and the control un are are certainly two uns that we could probably do without and of course ross also this week ross the government did pass legislation to cut the number of people in the examination un as ross talked about there and of course this looks like the government is is trying surreptitiously to get rid of the control UN? Well, the, there's the freezing concept that you know, was used for the Taiwan provincial governments. You can always try to freeze these things uh, using a legislative majority to, to pass a law to freeze something, or you give it a nominal budget and you keep a nominal head, but then you actually migrate out the operations to other government agencies so maybe that's a path to go to uh, assuming the dpp gets a plurality or majority in in the next legislative un yeah you talk about the control un we should lump that into the same debate as whether people know anything about the uh the uh Kaohsiung incident 40 years ago i don't think anybody knows what it is or what it does so if they're going to repurpose some of their work and farm it out to other agencies, that might help raise their profile. But regarding this Human Rights Committee, I do think it's a sign of um, 
it's something that governments at all levels just can do without just a couple pen strokes, and it looks grand, it looks major, and we've created a commission, we've created a committee, and governments all over the world at all levels will do this to try to prove something. Uh, what are they trying to prove? I suspect that it's not going to be um, geared toward Taiwan-based um, human rights issues, although I, I do think we have some here that aren't being addressed. Uh, but they, I think Taiwan in general is trying to position itself as a kind of a watchdog of human rights around Asia and perhaps further afield. We've seen some conferences to that effect coming here um, over the last couple of years. And so they might come up with these white papers and studies where they, they look at the Uyghurs in China, they look at the protests in Hong Kong and things like that, and just try to raise the whole profile of, of uh, Taiwan as being a leader in that field. Well, uh, Taiwan does issue reports on its own human rights performance after uh, Taiwan legislated under domestic law uh, several international treaties. Of course, Taiwan's not a signatory to the treaties, but it was made domestic law, so Taiwan does do annual reviews. There are committees of international experts who come to Taiwan, so we're already doing a lot of reporting. Whether or not Taiwan could play a, a regional role, I, look, there are no government officials or scholars from Taiwan who will get an invitation to go to Xinjiang to write a report about the treatment of Uyghurs. So that's probably a role that uh, Taiwan uh, should not even bother aspiring to because it's not something they can achieve. One other piece of legislation this week also passed in the Legislative UN was um, an amendment to the Code of Criminal Procedure and apparently this will allow victims of certain crimes to more actively participate in trials and court hearings. Now, the amendment allows victims of attempted homicide and sexual assault to apply to the court to more actively participate in the trials of their aggressors as long as the court approves such applications. So, Ralph, I mean, what do you think of people that have been, obviously, the victims of homicide or sexual assault participating more in trials? I'm surprised they're not allowed to do that already. There must be some historic, um, you know, very backwards reason that they haven't been allowed to come in here. I used to cover court hearings periodically as a reporter in, in the U.S., and the victims, if they were still alive, would always be there. Uh, it's in their interest to come with their lawyer. They could be questioned. They can add to the, the pool of evidence that uh, the judge and the jury end up using. So perhaps um, Taiwan has realized that will be helpful to uh, solving some of these cases. Ross, as a lawyer. Oh, no, I'm a lawyer. You had to mention that, Gavin. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, we've we've talked very often on your show, Gavin, about problems with uh, the judiciary and as well as with prosecutors, and it's often just a training issue um, and their lack of knowledge about what we would consider best practices. And Ralph referred to one, which would seem very obvious, to inquire with with the victims uh, to meet more often with the victims. Uh, so the issue here is it hasn't really been required. Or the prosecutors and the judges don't have to do this. So this is trying to impose a bit of a bit. And I say a bit simply because, as you mentioned, Gavin, the judge has got to agree. But at least it provides some framework for the victims to knock on the door and say, hey, prosecutor, hey, judge, I have something to say. There isn't anything stopping the prosecutor going to Rob's question. I mean, there's nothing stopping the prosecutor or the judge now from calling up the victim and saying, look, we want you more involved. Uh, but uh, the way it usually works in, in the 
the trial process, at least here, is uh, it's you know, the judge does what they want. The you know, he hearings or trials in Taiwan are not contiguous, so you know, there could be a hearing once every three months uh, in a criminal trial. Uh, so things are very spaced out um, as far as the timeline goes, uh, and the judge could ask a, a, for, for more information or not. You know, they'll just, they just run the trial the way they want to. So now there's some framework where the victim or the victim's advocate, if the victim has a lawyer, can knock on the door and say, you know, we actually ha have a right to be heard and, and uh, we, want to, we want to have some input on the way the trial is being conducted. Whether it will change any outcomes remains to be seen. As we mentioned, the judge needs to consent. Uh, one of the problems, and that's something we've talked about on the show, is is that judges still give very light sentences. They give sentences that, uh, frankly, anger the public because they're seen as insufficiently uh, uh, tough on, on perpetrators of crime. And we've seen this uh, with sexual assault. We've seen this with children, uh, crimes involving children. Uh, so this could be cosmetic. I remember an earlier show um, with Ralph uh, after a child was murdered on, on, on the street. Ralph mentioned that his, his school, where his kids go, they did some cosmetic changes to the walls around the school, but it wasn't really substantive. Uh, so this might be one of those non-substantive changes, uh, unfortunately, uh, when I think the issue is really still just training for prosecutors and judges, and this just does not achieve that. Right, before we go this week, local television drama The World Between Us was the most searched for item on Google here in Taiwan over the past year. The crime series topped the Google year in search list based on search demands from December of 2018 to November of this year. Now, Google Taiwan General Manager Tina Lee says television dramas or movie-related content occupied six places in the top ten general list, and those also included Chinese dramas, the US movie Joker and the South Korean television series Hotel Del Luna. Now, a Taiwan movie was in the list, that being Detention, and a South Korean black comedy movie called Parasite was also in the list. Other things that joined the Google top searches this year were Hang Yu, the 2019 World Baseball Premier 12 tournament, the protests in Hong Kong, and the Ever Air flight attendant strike. So, Ralph, did you search for any of those things, and are you a Google statistic? Uh, yeah, I definitely looked for uh, Hong Kong. Looked, read a lot of stuff on that. I'm not sure how much of it came from Google, but that, I do remember some Google news searches when I was away for part of the summer. Just yeah, see what's going on in Hong Kong. The Eva Air flight attendants, absolutely. Uh, that was a that was a big deal back in June. Um, I'm afraid I didn't really go after the, uh, the the films and the entertainment. And then the baseball stuff was I followed through some of the local media, so I didn't have to Google it. And, Ross, did you Google any of these topics this year? Well, Gavin, I, I, as a matter of policy, I, do, I neither confirm nor deny any Google searches for any, any terms. Uh, so It's OK. I'll just get hold of your computer and do you get, check your history, mate. So there's no way you can get away with it. So uh, did, you, did you search for any of these or not? It, certainly. Uh, did, I, I would say it's a positive that there's a mixture that you know, people in Taiwan are searching things, not 100% 
in Taiwan. Uh, so they are searching some things, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Hong Kong, Korea-related. Uh, doesn't seem like there are too many things from the West. That's interesting. Not too many things from the United States or Europe. For example, Gavin, uh, if I read the news correctly, there was an election in your country within the last few hours. Um, you know, people here in Taiwan don't seem to be searching for Brexit. Uh, I don't blame them. I wouldn't search for it either. I would ban it from Google if it was up to me. They searched for Hongo Yu, but they didn't search for my president, Donald Trump, who also gets a lot of media attention. Again, I'm not surprised, to be honest with you, but never mind. Anyway, there you go. That was it here this week on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.